Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijong, a culture writer and critic. So this week we're going to be talking about The Queen's Gambit, which is a TV show, and His House, which is a film. They're both on Netflix. Which one of them did you watch, Jenny, this week? Uh, so I watched The Queen's Gambit. Um, it's a limited series, seven episodes, um, based on a 1983 novel um, by Walter Tevis. It's about basically an, an orphan girl um, named Beth Harmon who sort of stumbles into the world of chess. She becomes a chess prodigy and then it follows her life in the, the 50s to 60s as she embarks on a quest to become a world champion player. So yeah, to start off with, what did you think, Pell? And you also watched The Queen's Gambit, right? Yeah, I kind of crushed it over two days. Um, <laughs> Same. I really liked it a lot. I really did. I think Netflix must have heard us chatting shit about them last week because uh, they really, really delivered. I, I, I honestly, I'm so delighted. I'm mostly delighted that it's a limited series. I was really um, kind of taken aback by that just because, you, as you know, Netflix's whole currency is keeping people locked in constantly over seasons and seasons until they decide it's not worth it anymore. So it was really nice to see like a limited series investment by them. Yeah, I totally agree. I almost feel like I have to eat my words from last week because when Netflix gets it right, as they sometimes, occasionally, Occasionally do um, they they get it right and I think this is one example of it. Um, so the premise maybe sounds a bit boring because it's uh, chess, which you know the average person may think of it as like oh fucking nerds, but it's <laughs> it's not that at all. It's it's a really fascinating peek into this uh, space that is competitive and dramatic and has a ton of highs and, and lows. And it was honestly uh, a little bit thrilling and had some level of emotional depth. So yeah. It would, I would definitely consider it one of the, the most watchable things that I've, I've sort of like consumed very quickly uh, in recent months or maybe even the whole year. So definitely uh, it reminds me kind of a like a classic fairy tale or children's literature story in many ways. Um, I think especially the, the early episodes where it dedicates a lot of time to the main character Beth, her childhood and how she, you know, ended up in this orphanage and how she stumbled upon chess. There was a very sort of... You know, as Mike Hale wrote for the New York Times, he, he used the word Dickensian to describe it. Of course, Charles Dickens. Um, I thought that was that was really accurate. And that is what yeah. sort of hooked me in in those early episodes. It's this yeah. very storybook type of feeling. Yeah, exactly. And especially because like nowadays, there's so much about someone's backstory or traumas or whatever they might have gone through being like the leading reason for them to do something. I mean, spoiler alert, but that's really not the case here. Uh, she, Like you said, she has a shitty childhood, but she finds some solace in something thanks to an older man who is not molesting her, which, you know, you know that that does happen <laughs> in bar. orphanages. Yeah. But like, um, yeah, it, it wasn't that. It was actually pretty earnest and pure in terms of the, the motives for her starting to play chess. Obviously, along the way, um, there are some nuances to her and as a person, but, you know, she, her trauma isn't what, completely defines her and I think for a female character especially it's pretty refreshing to watch yeah um absolutely and so as you sort of watch these early episodes and the entire series really I think that you might notice um there are quite a few sort of tropes that you might be familiar with um of course like again the the orphan aspect she lost her parents at a young age um, or her mother specifically who raised her 
there is this older man, as you mentioned, Pellin, this who kind of takes on the role as, you know, like in very sort of like classic story structures, narrative structures, the wise mentor or like wizard figure. Um, in her case, it's this custodian who teaches her how to play chess. Um, shout out Mr. Scheibel. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so she, she discovers like this sort of superpower of her own. She, you know, experiences like the joys and sort of new world of uh, a family and a mother figure. Tragedy, more tragedy, uh, figures from a past reappearing. This sort of like rule of threes, like three times she's she plays this world champion who is her like biggest rival. She has three different kind of main uh, romantic interests slash sort of support figures in the chess world. So those are all sort of, uh, you know, patterns and themes and tropes that I think we're familiar with from all of these other stories going back to literally like the, the time of heroes. Um, but I think it it's predictable in a sense, but it is successful. Like I think what makes it so strong in some ways is that it makes use of these tropes well and it plays off of them and it sort of executes them um, in a pretty smart way. I think humans for ages since like the early, early times have always enjoyed a narrative arc that follows a particular pattern. It's never the tropes that we have an issue with. Whenever we come across them, it's the execution of them. Yeah. And this is, this, is a, this is extremely perfect example of how you can follow the tropes. But if it's written by someone that knows what the hell they're doing, then they'll then it won't feel like you've watched it before. It won't feel, you know, tired or repeated. It will feel exciting because then you just let the ship steer itself and all you need to do is like, you know, check to see if there's dolphins in the water or whatever. I don't know. But (laughs) it's just, that's why I think that it becomes so comforting in addition to feeling like you're actually adding something of value to your time when you're watching something. Yeah. I will say like maybe one downside that that I did sort of see... um, this sort of like soul-minded kind of hero's journey as focus on Beth, um, which of course, you know, makes sense in the context of the, the genre. Um, I'm speaking specifically about Jolene, for example. Um, right. I, I'd like to yeah. talk about Jolene. I love Jo. Oh my God, Jolene. One of the best <laughs> characters I've watched on TV this year. What what a queen. I love her so yeah. much. Yeah, she's, she's wonderful. So Jolene is um, this girl from Beth's childhood when she was in the orphanage. This was the the girl, the, the older girl who sort of took her under wing, taught her, you know, the ins and outs of the orphanage, um, really was with her throughout all of her orphanage days up until she got adopted. And uh, spoiler alert, um, she sort of reappears uh, later in the series when Beth is at her lowest point. Angeline is, of course, the only sort of major uh, non-white character. I'd, I'd love to talk to you, Pellin, about, you know, mm. how, you know, the, the sort of good points like how why Jolene is such a wonderful character in some ways mm. and then maybe some of the the things that I think could have been addressed a little bit better with her so sure. yeah let's start off with like what makes Jolene such a good character to you she's an ex- she's an especially whip smart person it comes across in the writing in the way that she talks in the way that they talk to one another I think she makes uh Beth more likable because of the mm-hmm. fact that they have such a great relationship in in a way that they know how to make fun of each other. Um, she refers to Beth as, you know, hey cracker and Beth yeah. just doesn't blink. You know, it makes her more likable literally because like to her, it's like, yeah, that's just 
that's just a term of endearment for for me and that's fine and then when you see them later on in life not much of that has changed like their dna is still the same in terms of like the type of people that they are the sardonic making fun of each other rapport that they have with one another yeah i i mean she really did sort of light up the screen whenever she appeared i think like moses ingram definitely is sort of a standout um and, and breakout um player in this cast so one of the the moments i think is most significant when thinking about jolene is when again like slight spoiler she reappears in beth's life when they're they're both older and beth is sort of at her lowest point um beth is running out of options to turn to to try to to fund a trip to the champion the world championships um and it's jolene who sort of reappears and comes through she um helps her out by giving her money that is meant for law school um beth sort of like in a moment of appreciation like breaks down and says like you're you're my guardian angel um, but Jolene, like being the sort of not no nonsense um, character that she is, she's like, no, I'm not, and don't call me that. It's because we're family, and you know, I would expect you to do the same for me. Um, you know, if it were the other way around, or sometime in the future, and mm. you're gonna yeah. pay me back anyway, right? Yeah. Um, so that moment, I think, it sort of is trying to accomplish. It, it's a great character moment. Um, but I think it comes with the, the slight caveat in my reading of it's trying to work on a meta level as well. Like, again, Jolene is the only black character in a very white cast. Um, mm. um, and I say black character, like major black character. There's another sort of very minor black character earlier on in the in the series. Um, so it's almost like saying that the show's creators are trying to acknowledge the the fact that Jolene is the only black character that she sort of plays this best friend supporting role to Beth the white main character um yeah. and taking a shot at like that that trope of the uh, you know this mystical black character a wise man or a wise woman or or something like that who's trying to whose only existence is essentially to aid the white hero. Um, this is a right. trope that has existed, I think, in a lot of film and literature. Um, so I, to me, it felt like the show was very aware of this fact. And so mm-hmm. they put in that line of like, I'm not your guardian angel. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm doing this because X, Y, Z. And so in that way, um, trying to subvert that notion. And I don't know, I guess it, you could consider it successful or not. Um, I think knowing what we know about her personality i think it is sort of in character for her um but there's also sort of the question of like you know by doing this by acknowledging that there is this trope that they're trying to subvert is like acknowledgement itself the same as like absolving them of you know the sin of still having this trope play out in some way i don't know i i i'm not sure um what do you think of that pelin that's yeah i mean that's one of the things that has started to happen in in a lot of the stuff that has been written in the last couple of years of of very self-aware writing yeah. uh, through dialogue or through you know scenes yeah I, I do think that it falls under that trope but in terms of how i felt about it in that moment especially considering what had happened in the episodes previous you know jolene has got her life figured out she has mm-hmm. purpose whereas for beth 
what does she do <laughs> even after she wins you know these matches what does she do and this is a question that they they grapple with throughout the series as well through the uh, character of Borgov is you know you win you go to these tournaments you win you win again until someone else comes along and they beat you and then you retire and then that's it and then what do you do whereas you know someone like Jolene is she's going to be fighting a very very worthy cause as a lawyer so in terms of that yeah like I think I think it still makes sense I don't think it's an absolution completely um, but I think a lot there was a lot of finesse that went into the character development of both of these women um, in a way that it makes sense it makes sense for Jolene to offer that it makes sense for her to expect it from Beth and it makes sense for her to check Beth as well I think she's been checking Beth uh, since they were very little so it's again yeah. it's like it, it's a continuation of something that was established very early on um, right so, so. It, it can be a trope but it can also be sort of true to the characters um which i think is yeah. is always like a, a possibility and and I, I think it does help that of course like jolene is not the only character to sort of orbit around like beth's um gravitational pull like all these other yeah uh white characters all these these men who are enamored with her in different ways they also sort of exist um, with a little bit of background, but also with um, largely dedicated to the cause of supporting Beth um, in her lowest moments. So, oh, yeah, yeah I guess it applies like across the board to a lot of these characters, um, which again, like this yeah. is sort of the nature of this sort of story where in like Beth is really the the son of this um, this universe, like the, the, the hero of the hero's journey again. Beth actually kind of exploits the kindness of a lot of white men in this which is <laughs> which is again refreshing to see yeah it, that's that's one thing i don't think she's ever exploited jolene i don't think she's ever put jolene in harm's way um yeah. which is which is important obviously she accepts it and she makes the clumsy comment of guardian angel but um she's corrected very swiftly and and they go about their day mm-hmm. yeah so overall um, it seems that we both liked it. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of other people do. Uh, so what about you, Pellin? What did you watch this week? So this week I watched uh, the film His House. It is a British production. And I take it you did not watch it, Jenny. I'm not a big horror fan. Pellin is. So she's going to handle a lot of these these horror flicks, which I will... Gladly read the synopses of on, on Wikipedia, but I probably won't be watching most of them. So that's my apology. That's okay. You're a delicate flower and I will protect you at all costs. <laughs> um, so so um, unless you didn't already realize, his house is a horror film and it is directed by Remy Weeks. This is his fe- feature length directorial debut. Um, it's starring Wunmi Masaku from Lovecraft Country, End of the Fucking World. Um, she plays Rial, the wife in this, and uh, Chope Dirisu from Gangs of London, who plays Bol, the husband. Bol and Dirisu are a married couple. They're, sel- they're from South Sudan. They emigrate to England after escaping their homeland. And they have lived through this immense trauma that comes with a journey like that. So... It's essentially a haunted house film. They, the, the married couple, when, when they come to England, they then get sent to a council house to stay in as a, like a probationary period for them to live in so that they get their um, asylum application approved. And then they get sent to this place. I think it's in Essex. It's basically a suburb outside of London. I say suburb, but it isn't suburb in the American sense. It's just um, kind of like an economically deprived area where a lot of, you know, working class people live at. 
And they go, they pull up to this place and it's um, completely run down. And then, you know, they start hearing voices and they start seeing things. And that's kind of, that's all I want to say. Yeah, it's it does an incredible job of showcasing how a haunted house doesn't have to be in a huge mansion or in a huge, like, old historical um, townhouse in, in, like, suburban America. A haunted house can be in, in a council house estate in Essex. So from my understanding, like, haunted houses, like, a lot of that, the sort of trope of that, it's about the place itself. Here, my understanding of it is that it's, like, not even so much about the place itself as, like, what these people sort of bring to it. Is that right? Oh, yeah, completely. So the, the thing about Survivor's Guilt being, you know, the North Star of this film is that they have brought the monsters with them into the house. But, you know, you can kind of gather what that might look like in terms of the married couple, their daughter, and why their daughter isn't with them right now, and, and what that means and what it means to kind of lose a child. But I think the the most artful way that Remy Weeks wrote in, you know, the immigrant experience, the refugee experience especially, is with the theme of assimilation. The, the married couple themselves, the man and the woman, they each represent two approaches to assimilation, one being a very forceful, really enthusiastic way of assimilating through Bol, the, the husband, and then uh, through the woman basically not wanting to, essentially, and, and not wanting to forget where she's from and not wanting to forget her culture. And it's done in really, like, really finessed ways. I think that there's a really great scene where they go to eat and he brings in a knife and a fork. That's not how they eat. And, and you know, she says, like, all I can taste is the metal. Wow. And he says, you'll get used to it. You know, that, that scene itself is just, um, the, the, you know, the burden of proof is on you in terms of like, how British are you and, and, and why do you deserve to be here? And a lot of that has to do with how well you've been assimilated into it. And Remy Weeks himself, the director and writer of this, he kind of talks about that because he himself is not South Sudanese, but, you know, he, he comes from a mixed background. And, you know, he talks about how a lot of immigrants are stuck between emulating the culture in which they found themselves in and then realizing that they can't ever win. Um, which is, you know, the case a lot of the time in England. So then they, you know, then they, then they turn to wearing their culture with, with pride. So very universal thing. Extremely, yeah. And you see that journey through the both of them, through the man and the wife. And then it's it's something that, you know, you see throughout. There are, there are really nice symbols in terms of like what they're wearing. Uh, they both start off wearing very colorful clothes. And then somewhere in the middle of the film, they're wearing very dull gray clothes. And then... Uh, the the last scene of the film they're both back to to really colorful garb so so how does this compare to um like a lot of what we've been seeing out of the horror genre these past few years so like the horror genre in like especially the 2010s onwards has has really kind of found its footing in terms of becoming a little bit more nuanced and i think that comes after a lot of the torture porn shit that we saw in like the bush era it got to the point where you know how many more limbs can you be see ripped off before you just kind of have enough and you realize that like you can't sink any lower and then you have to kind of go back up again that's kind of what's been happening to the horror genre so they've in especially with regards to um robert eggers um ari aster and especially jordan peele i think get out was a really watershed moment for horror that's like one horror film i did see like in the past five years i would say yeah and that i mean that wasn't that bad was it did, no, you scared? no yeah exactly see you're a big girl you know <laughs> you're fine um yeah it, it, it i think the reason why get out was so was so pivotal especially is because it really brought in real world horror the the you know it folded it into the the plot of the film itself and it did it in a way that really didn't feel 
didn't feel forceful it really did feel harrowing and it and it felt in a way that didn't make a mockery i guess out of both of those things yeah and, and that's and that's why it, i think his house as a film kind of falls under that umbrella especially because it does talk about the refugee crisis it talks about you know trauma it talks about grief it talks about survivor's guilt all of these things they are basically in the driver's seat and the horrors in the passenger seat whereas before it used to be kind of the reverse mm-hmm. um and you know the, the the reason why his house is an existence of you know that elevated genre of horror that has has become more and more popular is because when it ends even though there is a resolution and you know there, there is like quiet essentially in terms of especially on the horror side of stuff dude i couldn't stop crying once the film ended like i couldn't stop crying and i text you right afterwards and mm-hmm. i was just like I hope I can get through this podcast without crying. Um, You know, just a little bit of background about myself. I have two degrees in international politics and it sent me into very severe depression for a reason. This world is fucked. And um, I guess that that was the thing that really leaves you feeling, makes you feel a little bit scarred. Not because you were scared, but because you realize that like, oh, this world does not know how to protect its most vulnerable people. And uh, there's really there's really nothing at this point that can be done about that. And the characters are an example of that because they have to be, you know, radically strong to kind of fight for their own existence as humans, as fully realized humans. And that is really sad. But yeah, I just um, I just want to give a shout out to a couple of scenes that were obviously references to other iconic horror films. There's a scene in which Rial, the wife, is uh, lost trying to figure out how to get to a place. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is walking around the estate. And then she keeps coming back to a boy that, that is kicking his ball. This is um, a, a shout out to The Shining and The Maze. Um, but then there's another scene that I don't really want to get into. But if you have seen the film Come and See, I don't know if it's meant to be a horror film, but I, I classify it as one. But that's also about civil war and the terrors of it. But there, there's one scene that, that really references that as well. But honestly, the this film looks incredible. The jump scares are amazing and artfully done. There's no, like, it doesn't play coy with, with showing the monsters or the ghosts. It does a really good job of just like, oh, we're doing this. Like from the very <laughs> beginning, it was just like, oh, okay. There's no like real buildup. Like we're just getting right into it were you um, legit scared yeah there were there were actually some points in which where I was, where I, the the very first jump scare really took me out honestly <laughs> and then i was and then i was tense for the rest of the the rest of the film it's just um i will never forget how some of those dream sequences were shot just otherworldly honestly like the, there's this one scene where the husband is eating dinner and then it just pans out and he's in the middle of the sea and I've never seen anything oh. like that. It's just stunning. Yeah, shout out to the cinematographer, Joe Willems. But I just wanted to g- give away some interesting facts. Um, did you know that Harvey Weinstein tried to buy the script? And oh. then, yeah, back in the day. And then when uh, Remy Week said no, that they tried to sue him, obviously, because he's wow, a fucking bitch. monster. Um, but then Me Too happened. <laughs> so that put a pin in that. Um, <laughs> and then, But yeah, just an incredibly artful thoughtful and uh you know an out and out horror film like it's actually scary but it's also um emotionally scarring if that's that's Mm -hmm. what you're in the mood for um yeah i i would really really recommend this film so that's what we watched this week uh in terms of 
culture, what else has been happening, Jenny? Because I've been trying to tune out as much as I can, so give it to me. Um, so, I mean, a lot of really dumb stuff, a lot of really bleak stuff. But one highlight among, you know, the sort of intersects both of those categories, this sort of treasure trove of a document that has emerged um, through reporting very recently. Basically, the Trump administration, their health, the, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, they had this whole plan to put together a campaign to, quote unquote, defeat despair about <laughs> COVID. Um, and so they were thinking about, you know, how to get celebrities involved, um, how to sort of get them to join in this public statement. And so Politico is one of the, the outlets they reported on this. They got this document that sort of lays out their assessments of a whole list of celebrities um, and their sort of like public images, whether or not they accepted this offer to appear in this government campaign, um, whether or not they replied, stuff like that. And it's just sort of the the most absurd and, I don't know, just so fucking funny um, assessment of modern celebrity, I think. Um, so we'll include the link in our show notes and our Substack. But how about we go through and pick some of our, our favorites to highlight, Palin? So they have a column where it kind of states whether or not they responded to the reach out. It's a lot of pending answers, man. Yeah. In terms of like who said yes. Let's see. So let, let me just scroll through and name who said yes. So Dennis Quaid, the human melted candle, formerly known as an actor. Um, yeah. He accepted. Yeah, Mark Anthony accepted. Um, let me find the other green yeses. They've... Yeah, I think that's it. I think they're the only two people that said yes that's embarrassing oh my god can you imagine like being one of two people that rsvp'd yes it's... that's so embarrassing <laughs> the my favorite no is is uh dwayne johnson of the rock fame um i have a theory i think it's because he's running for president in 2024 yeah um, he's like the ultra centrist um... yeah but... just just i i just want to say like the goal in them even inviting 95% of these people. Yeah, they went for some, um, like, A-list. Um, yo, Yo-Yo Ma was a maybe. Team will get back to us. No specific political or criminal history notes. He is a yeah, blank slate. Because he fucking stays in his business, baby. <laughs> L- let me tell you something about Yo-Yo Ma. You will only see him if he's playing the fucking instrument. Other than that, he's not... As he, he should. It, it's no long talk from Yo-Yo Ma. Anyway, um, Jay-Z was a maybe. Manager is talking to him. Reconsider depending on who signs. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah, you gotta see you gotta Yo, see who's in the roster. Oh my god, I love that whole like who's going. <laughs> yeah, and then just the fact that Mark Anthony is caught out here like a fucking idiot. What a loser! <laughs> what a Jared Leto loser. is overcommitted. Check back next one. Mm, Jared um, Leto is overcommitted with what? Literally with his cults, maybe. Yeah, probably. Um, Joe Rogan also overcommitted. Damn. Shout out to Betty White and Guy Fieri saying no. Yeah, they declined. They straight hey. up declined. Betty was like, I've got literally like five minutes left until the end of my life. I'm not going <laughs> to spend it. I'm not going to spend it with you, you fucking idiot. You know what? I'm surprised Mark Wahlberg said no. I'll, I'll I, okay, I was surprised by that too. Um, yeah. Knowing his Marky Mark's history of oh man, beating up old Asian men and hate criming. This is a fun little activity. Give it a read. Again, um, we'll link to it in our subsection show notes. Otherwise, I think that is it for culture. 
if you are watching anything or distracting yourself with anything that you think we should know about, let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter. Again, criticismisdead, all one word. Yeah, rate, review, tell a friend. Uh, Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. See you next week. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Liu and Jenny Ji Jung. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu.